Hi, I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and a co-host of Working, a podcast about the creative process. I recently recorded a segment on Working with Amicus's own Dahlia Lithwick and Slate staff writer Molly Olmsted about their big Class of RBG project, which you heard on Amicus last month. And I wanted to share that segment with you today. You'll get to hear about how the project was put together over the past year, what it was like to interview Justice Ginsburg, and other great behind-the-scenes stories. Here's our conversation. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, June. And Molly Olmsted is a Slate staff writer. Hi, Molly. Hi, June. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Where did the idea for the Class of RBG originate? Dan Coyce's wife is the short answer. That's Alia Smith, who's an attorney herself. Where did she come up with it? She watched the movie, the biopic, Mm -hmm. on the basis of sex. There's this famous scene that everybody talks about. Erwin Griswold has all, it's 1956, it's the autumn, and all the women in the class of... 59 at Harvard, all of them are invited to his home to explain one by one painstakingly um, why they took a slot from a man at Harvard Law School. There were 10 women in the class, including RBG, 500 plus men, and they had to justify it. So I think that the genesis was, thank God, a woman watching that said, what happened to those other nine women? And we were off. Amazing. So, okay, great idea. How did you move from great idea to what became this huge piece and and two-part podcast series? Molly, where did you begin? Well, the the first step was trying to figure out who these women were, which there was nothing online that, that had a list of these women. So I had to sneak into Georgetown's law library. Here's the felony part of the story. Let's <laughs> yeah. get it out of the way. Um, <laughs> I, we had an intern at the time. I brought her along because she um, was an undergraduate student, I believe. And so we just kind of were hoping that if we got caught that I would at least like have someone uh, to point to to be like, look, it's all fine. But... Um, yeah, ultimately, I just sort of like walked in with confidence and no one really stopped me. So um, I we got these yearbooks and I sort of, you know, took some photos, wrote down some names. And then the rest is just sort of like standard stuff. We just we were just d- trying to figure out through like the Internet, mostly who these women were. And it wasn't it wasn't super straightforward, but uh you know, we eventually got there. Can you remind me how many of the women of the class of 59 are still alive? Yes. So we had Carol and Flora, who were the two who talked to us, obviously Justice Ginsburg. Um, and then two other women who, for whatever reasons, were just not comfortable being in the audio part of this project. So uh, that was Betty Jean and Trudy. So four women other than Justice Ginsburg. And so the other five have passed away, but you spoke with their family, their survivors? That's right. Mostly their children. I know there was so much hard work involved in that, in the thing that you kind of boiled down to standard 
reporting procedures. Were there any that were just really hard that it that it actually took some serious sleuthing to track down? Well, Trudy's the really tricky one because she was not in that 58 or 59 yearbook. So we really did not find out that she was part of this class until uh, we actually met up. Well, actually, I think we emailed Justice Ginsburg and we got back this reply being like, I think you missed one. Um, And then so I had to scramble. I was so, uh, I mean, I was embarrassed, but mostly I was just like, in awe of this woman and her just remarkable memory. Um, So we, it did take a while to find out who she was, um, but ultimately we had someone on staff who went to the same undergraduate university she went to, and so I was able to use his login information to get to some sort of alumni directory. So there's a lot of me pretending to be people who I'm not. Um, And then we were able to find her uh, married name from that and track her down. But yeah. Molly's like the James Bond of reporting. Like she was just, it was amazing. She was so dogged. And maybe it's just worth saying explicitly that Part of the reason it was complicated, I don't know about you, Molly, but I keep getting emails from people that there that say like, well, my mother was in that class and she says there were nine people, there were 10 people there. And the number kept changing because people dropped in, people dropped out. There were people, you know, one of our women transferred in as a 2L, RBG left as a 3L, um, Trudy dropped out after her first year. So, and, and their names were changing. And so there was just, mm-hmm. you know, it was nothing that we were... I think anticipating in terms of at no point in this project was there like a stable number of women with consistent names. And that was just very, very tricky. And that was where Molly was just a mad woman. Like she just wouldn't let it go. And um, some of these folks, you know, were anxious about talking on the phone, very anxious about talking on the phone. And Molly just unbelievable ability to just persist, but also just like absolutely generously protect them. Molly, as you mentioned, we don't hear from everyone on the show, on the podcast. Some of them didn't want to be recorded. I imagine just because I know that um, in audio, if you don't have the voices, you don't have the story. People are always pushing for that. I understand that at some point that protectiveness actually kind of had you pushing back against other members of the team. Can you talk about how that worked out for you? Yeah, I I spent a lot of time thinking about this because, I mean, I come from, I'm, I went to a more, I guess, traditional journalism school that um, in some ways I feel like some of the professors I had would have said that I was being in some ways not a great journalist by making these decisions. But I felt like this project was so different from some of the ones that are, you know, maybe about something that is a little bit more political or has some element um, where you have to really think hard about making sure, you know, you're doing everything right ethically. This one, you know, these are the stories of these women. They're intimate. They're very personal. And they're doing us a favor by talking to us. And I mean, granted, yes, it's nice for them, for the most part, to have their stories out there. But I also was aware that, you know, these women were, they were giving me their time. The family members were giving these memories that were really valuable to them. And I just, I talked about this a lot with Susan, um, who edited me in this project. And 
there were times when it, you know, it would have been great to really push for something, but we ultimately mm-hmm. decided it, it just wasn't worth alienating one of these women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in journalism school, there's a lot of talking about ethics, but and one of the things they talk about is do no harm. And I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes we can forget about that one. And I, I mean, I personally had to sort of think of myself as a journalist, as a person, as a human being, sort of separate those sometimes and think, you know, as a human being, like, it's way more important to me that I do nothing to pressure these women beyond something that they're comfortable with. You know, I think one of the things that Molly kept reminding us was the fragility of memory. And Mm -hmm. some of the women who talked to Molly, you know, are still alive, but didn't want to be recorded, were just really uncertain that they remembered things. And I just think, you know, you get this idea, this zealous idea, like we're building an archive, we're building a time capsule, like Mm -hmm. this should have been done 20 years ago, but damn it, like, let's get it all down now. And I think what Molly kept reminding us, and like, for me, it was so profoundly important to be reminded that like, don't press people into putting memories like in audio that they're not comfortable with. Yeah. Dahlia, a big part of the audio, certainly, and and the also of the text piece, was the interview that you did with Justice Ginsburg. How did you secure an interview with her? That was a that was a hail mary. I mean, with Justice Ginsburg, sometimes you have to you know go through the press office and they pass it on to her, and sometimes you get a yes, and sometimes you get a no. And uh, it was really interesting because she she immediately said she would participate, um, and it really struck me after that this is unlike most interviews she does, mm-hmm. and that you know I've done. One with her, for instance, when Glamour made her Woman of the Year several years ago, uh, where she, you know, has a few things that she says and she says them Mm -hmm. frequently. And I think she loved this project because it was totally different. Mm. And one of the things we noticed when we sat down with her was that she was having memories in real time. And saying things that she hadn't said before. I think one of the things that was really striking is she had not done a lot of interviews necessarily prompted by, again, this is Molly's research, but, you know, to be able to say, Flora told us about this ladies' day, you know, like we were able to ask her about things that were not necessarily top of mind for her. And so I think as a consequence, both for us and for her, it was really a lot of fresh material And that, I think, was one of the things that made it really interesting for her. I I think one thing I would say about Justice Ginsburg generally is she always says, she said at her confirmation hearing, she said when she was sworn in, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. She's so meticulous to credit the people along the way. And I think for her, having a spotlight on the women in her class and making the point that this was not just about her, it was about everyone, I think really jibes with how she tries to think about her own history. This is projection on my part, but as I was both listening to the the podcast episodes and reading the text, like, it's really moving. And, you know, I'm not going to say I was weeping, but like, I was definitely kind of choking up as I was reading this. Like, 
Did that happen to you or was there something about the kind of the distance of the reporting project or, you know, having been in the presence of Justice Ginsburg? Like, can you talk about how emotional or not it was for you to? Um, I'll maybe start with you, Dahlia. Oh, I think we cried every step of the way. And, you know, as we're recording this, I mean, we're we're still finishing part two of the podcast and still writing. And in the last week, we've had news that Justice Ginsburg's uh, cancer has metastasized and that she was treated again this spring. So you can't help but have this split screen of, we're doing this deep reportorial, what we think of as a time capsule or an archive, but also just so profoundly aware that at bottom, she's 87. She's a three-time cancer survivor. She's been hospitalized several times this year alone. So that's always, in some sense, colored everything and more so in the past few weeks. But I, I think even before the sort of immediate sense um, that her health is fragile. I, I think it was such an emotional project. I'm just thinking, I mean, Molly can talk about it as well, but, you know, the the letter that we got from one of the women, Alice, her, her daughters, uh, shared the letter that Justice Ginsburg wrote when their mother died. And I, I think we sobbed. Like, I don't know... Yes if we like wept into our actual keyboards and shorted our keyboards. But I, I think there is so much of this project that is about, you know, frustrations and lives lived and roads not taken and, you know, husbands who were not supportive the way Marty Ginsburg was supportive and just the entirety of these extraordinary lives, uh, how much they adored her, how much they were like secretly terrified of her work <laughs> ethic. I mean, all of that. It was very, very, very emotional. And I don't know, I think often of the fact that most of the women, people who helmed this project were women and yeah. how that inflected on it. And I think before I let Molly answer, I would also say that the day that we went and interviewed RBG, it was... Sarah Burningham, who's my podcast producer, uh, Susan Matthews, who edited the whole project, Molly, who researched the whole project, um, and me. And I think for the four of us, being in the court, being in a room with RBG, it was, as it turns out, weeks before COVID shut the building down and, you know, work yeah. down. I, I think that was one of the most intense experiences of my career. Molly, um, can you talk about how emotional um, this project has been for you and also how it was to to be there for that interview? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, sometimes it got even more of an emotional punch from talking to these family members. I mean, one of these women died in 2011, one in 2015, one in 2018. Um, so some of them... I think felt the deaths felt a little um, fresh mm -hmm. to some of these family members. Mm -hmm. And so there would be one, I think there was one or two times where as I was interviewing the, you know, children of these people, they would um, choke up and, you yeah. know, cry on the phone with me. And like, it was hard not to feel that deeply. Um, my, my, I mean, my own mom, she, uh, she's a lawyer. So a lot of me, uh -huh. like I kind of 
felt some of that own pride in her that they were feeling in their mothers. And it was just, uh, I think I just felt this intense loyalty to these women who had um, died in a way that uh-huh. was went a little bit beyond, I guess, sort of normal professional boundaries. But um, so there was, it was a lot of that. And then mm-hmm. there was also, you know, we started this project well before everything happened with this coronavirus. Um, mm. But, you know, we picked it back up later in the pandemic. I mean, it was an emotionally challenging time for everyone, I think. I was really yeah. personally yeah. struggling um, with work. It just felt like it was all doom and gloom all the time. And then just sort of emotionally, you know, switch tacks and you're looking at these amazing lives and it has nothing to do with the news. And, uh, you know... I was talking to Trudy a lot in that time, who's just an insanely inspirational woman. And <laughs> it was just like... She, I remember sometimes she seemed to be um, like she couldn't talk because she was like just busy with activist activities. Yes, right? yes. Like one time, uh, I mean, the first time I called her, I called her and I was like, hi, like I'm trying to find. And then she just cut me off and she was like, I'm too busy. <laughs> like I've got all this <laughs> stuff going on. New Hampshire primary, right? It was right. the middle of and she was like, How dare you have the temerity <laughs> to bother me in the middle of the primary? And it was such a great we were so Oh my God, we found Trudy. Molly's calling Trudy and then she's like, Are you nuts calling me today? And it was such a great reminder that like she's actually busier than we were. <laughs> Right. I mean, she's amazing. Like all the time she would be like, I'm sorry, I don't have any time for you today. I have to go protest, (laughs) which is just amazing. So there was I mean, that on its own just like was it was a sort of different kind of uh, like I just felt so much like almost joy and relief. And I I mixed a sort of a cocktail of weird emotions. But I felt I was just so thankful for this project during that time. Um, mm. And then, of course, actually going to meet Justice Ginsburg herself was just yeah. such an experience. And I know this is going to sound as if I'm boasting of something, but I'm really not. Um, Dahlia had all these, like, you know, wonderful, insightful questions. And she was, you know, just like masterfully handling this interview with this frankly very intimidating woman because she speaks Mm. so slow that uh (laughs) it's actually i mean i just like was in awe of dahlia's skill in handling this interview but dahlia told me afterwards that uh justice ginsburg has this really soft spot for young women and Mm. so every once in a while she well not every once in a while pretty consistently she would field a question from dahlia and then as she was responding to the question turn and then just look at me straight in the (laughs) eyes um especially if she was giving some sort of advice or something like that and I remember being like this is I peaked today this is it for me (laughs) so that was I mean maybe one of the best days of my life and Molly is to be perfectly clear completely soft selling this it was like no one was in the room (laughs) like there was a producer an editor me and Molly and RBG and the folks there at the court who are wonderful, by the way, who are staffing her. And the only person that Justice Ginsburg was talking to was Molly, because I think she really deeply feels, and she talked about this, 
you know, that some of the problems that she's been fighting her whole life are still in existence. And she talked about unconscious bias and she talked about, you know, barriers for women. And I, I just felt as though there was something so magic in the fact that she was basically like, Ugh, Dahlia, you're old. Like I've talked to you before. <laughs> Get out. But you, Molly, you are my yeah. people. And it was it was no exaggeration because we all clocked it. It was really powerful that it felt as though having someone in the room who was, you know, a, a, a kind of brand new reporter who had poured her heart and soul into tracking down these histories, like that was the thing for the justice. It was amazing. Oh, that's so sweet. This is maybe a weird question, but... Um... As reporters, um, perhaps you're an exception, Dahlia, because you focus so much on the Supreme Court and the law, but we don't tend to have a lot of interaction with octogenarians or even just generally older people. Um, were you kind of aware of talking to these women, the women who are still alive, the ones that you talk with, of talking to them differently, even though like looking at their bios, they're all like been on the bench for 40 years, activists, like they're by no means sort of you know, they may be physically frail. I don't know. I know certainly one of them is. But like, it's it's clearly their minds are amazing. But were you just aware of like, we all have this weird way of talking to older people? Like, how much did that come into things, if at all? You, it's funny. I, I mean, I'm curious what Molly's going to say to this. But I, I would just say, this is another way that COVID changed everything. Yeah. And for me, the age thing was a big part of it. Because we mm -hmm. just saw you know, particularly in New York and in March and April, this sense of an entire generation, you know, day after day, someone in their 70s or 80s was dying. At my kid's school, we were getting a notice about someone's grandparents every mm -hmm. single day. And it just made it so poignant for me that part of quote unquote, coming to terms with the virus was that we were just going to, you know, say goodbye to a generation of people in their 70s and 80s and 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 be almost nonchalant about the yeah. death toll. So for me, I think, you know, I've long said that um, the thing I love most about covering the courts is the number of 70 and 80 year old <laughs> judges I've known, you know, they serve for life. Article three mm -hmm. judges, they don't become irrelevant, you know, like you do in Hollywood when you're 46. And so yeah. I think that it made me so very mindful and solicitous mm -hmm. that we are dealing with a generation that is so precious and so fragile because of the virus and that is almost invisible because, you know, the virus is wiping them out and we're not clocking it because we think their time has passed somehow. Yeah. And so that made me really deeply saddened by the fact that we're, we're not even aware of these extraordinary lives that we're losing. And so I think was a very long and, and somber yeah. answer, but I do think it's one of the ways that COVID colored everything for me. Yeah. Um, this was a two-episode podcast series as well as a text package. You're a podcast host, Dahlia. I know from the very beginning of your time at Slate, Molly, that you are also a big podcast person. Did the podcast and the text have different needs? Did those needs ever compete? Maybe Molly? Well, I mean, yes, they felt like two very different enterprises, um, I think one of the major distinctions that 
I mean, it solidified over time, but it was pretty clear early on, was that we were never going to be able to represent all of these women in the podcast part of it. And um, there was a brief period where I almost felt uh, protective. um, But then, you know, I I knew that we were never going to be able to get all those voices in. It would just be too cluttered. Um, But then there was also the element of the Justice Ginsburg interview. And I know that there was a lot of discussion early on because it was Mm. just so much gold. And we just wanted to include so much of it. And I mean, we knew that that was not going to in any way weigh down the um, print piece. But with audio, there's so many more limitations. And so we had so many discussions early on where we were talking about um, how we could you know, show what a remarkable full interview this was um, without sort of downplaying the other women involved. And I think, you know, Dahlia and Sara, who produced the audio piece, like they, I mean, they just handled it so well because they came to realize that there was like a really neat way to include the women who are alive and Justice Ginsburg without making it too much about any, any one person. We also, I think, initially conceived of this. Am I right, Molly? That we conceived of this as a print project for a very long time. And there were things we would have done differently if we entered it thinking it was a podcast. We probably would have gotten some of the families on audio. Part of me just wishes we had done this with a video camera and done it six years ago. I mean, you can always, you know, reverse engineer how it would have been perfect. I think because... It became a podcast kind of later in the execution. There were suddenly, you know, as Molly says, then suddenly we didn't have voices for everyone, whereas in print we had photos. And and uh, so I think it was a real lesson in some sense. This was neither fish nor fowl at any, you know, there was never a time when there wasn't a script for the podcast that was evolving and also text that was evolving. And those things were not always in conversation. And and I would say, frankly, um, it's been really interesting to do this on multiple platforms and, and get an email from someone who loved every second of it, but didn't know there was a podcast or who consumed the podcast and had no idea there was a print part. So I think in some ways we really learned about both the joys and the perils of doing something that turned out to be an interview with RBG that stands alone, but also this huge print project, but also the, you know, there was just a lot. And I think as a consequence, it was a real lesson in you don't seamlessly migrate back and forth from a podcast to a print piece. They are two different entities. And it was hard and we were crazy sometimes. But I think we tried to do justice to both forms with the understanding that not everybody consumed all of it. I would like to say that there is something really wonderful about knowing that if you can't fit something into one medium, you could probably get it into the other. Like, I I mean, I look, research some of the history of Harvard Law School, and none of that made it into the print piece. But, you know, it gets touched on in the audio piece. And it's just, it's, there's something very satisfying, not, (laughs) you know, about that, just like from a writer's perspective, and obviously not so much from an editor's perspective. Usually (laughs) don't get your way and get all the things you want in a piece. And so that felt really great. It's a second chance. Uh, I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Dahlia Lithwick and Molly Olmsted. Read their piece, The Class of RBG, at slate.com slash RBG, and listen to the two episodes of Amicus wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Thanks to both of you. Thank you, June. Thank you, June. Thanks, Molly. Working is a podcast about the creative process and how people get their work done. So far, we've interviewed people like opera singer Jamie Barton, journalist and novelist Taffy brodesser Ackner, and cartoonist Adrian Tomine. To hear those interviews and more, please subscribe. You can head over to slate.com slash working or find us wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.